Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, two of the nation's largest Protestant denominations, the Southern Baptist and the United Methodist, consider changing their logos and even their names as a way of putting past racial insensitivities behind them. But the changes are not universally welcome. Also, a new study says liberal congregations are significantly more political than conservative ones. And we take a look at Navajo Ministries, which is doing remarkable work in the Four Corners region of New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Arizona. Up first today... Armed attackers ambush a group of World Vision staff in the Democratic Republic of Congo last week, killing one and capturing two others. Another was seriously injured. Yet the staff convoy was returning from a mission to deliver food to vulnerable Congolese people in Libero, North Kiva province, uh, the nonprofit World Vision said in a statement. World Vision originally had not identified the staff members attacked nor the assailants, but Lubero's chief administrator, Richard Nyumbo, said that a community defense group known as the Mai Mai actually carried out the ambush. And a few days later, World Vision said that the staff member was 43-year-old Matehu Chinkangu, who had worked for World Vision for only a year, and he leaves behind a wife and five children. Now, Warren, I understand that the captors released the two hostages the same day following uh, pressures from their local community. Yeah, they did. And the staff member who suffered critical injuries was moved to Goma in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is a somewhat safer region. World Vision also safely evacuated other staff members who survived the attack. They had the help of the World Food Program and the UN Humanitarian Air Service to make that evacuation. A World Vision spokesman said that this attack was devastating, not just because of the death of the staff member, but because it disrupted food distribution to vulnerable children throughout the region, which will likely cause yet more deaths and spread terror throughout the region. According to Reuters, more than half a million people in eastern Congo have been forced to flee their homes since the beginning of this year because of a string of violent acts committed by more than 100 armed groups. Yeah, this isn't the first time that World Vision has been targeted. No, that's right. Several World Vision aid workers in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, were killed in November of last year in an ambush on a United Nations base. The staff members were part of a group administering Ebola vaccinations and other treatments. Now, Warren, let's return to the United States for our next story. The Episcopal Diocese of Chicago is planning to put its downtown headquarters up for sale. Yeah, 
uh, for those of you who know a bit about Chicago, it's on Huron Street, not far from what's known as the Magnificent Mile in downtown Chicago. So it's pretty choice real estate. But the cost of keeping up the building has also been pretty magnificent, according to uh, the diocesan staff, more than about $750,000 a year. And that's a lot of money uh, for a diocese that has shrunk to the point that it now has only 33,000 members in about 125 congregations in the Chicagoland area. Well, if the diocese is going to sell this building, do you know what they're planning on doing with the money? Well, they plan to put it in sort of an endowment-like fund uh, that would be governed by the diocese bishop and trustees, which currently holds the title on the property. At least part of that fund, they say, will go to creating affordable housing in the area. This development is just one of the latest in an ongoing decline of the Episcopal Church. Yeah, it sure is. For more than 20 years, uh, the Episcopal Church has been in decline. Episcopal Church congregations have been leaving the denomination, including several in the Chicago area. The departures have been the result of a liberal theological drift within the Episcopal Church that really began even more than 20 years ago, back in the 1960s. But it accelerated in recent decades with the ordination of openly gay clergy in the 1980s and in 2003, the elevation of an openly gay bishop. Now, most of the churches that left the Episcopal church denomination did so at pretty significant cost, since according to Episcopal church governance, the diocese and not the local church is the legal owner of most church property. So many joined the Anglican church in America from the Episcopal church, but they weren't able to take their buildings with them. ACNA, the Anglican church of North America, now has, though, more than a thousand congregations, despite that pretty serious barrier to entry, and more than 120,000 members. The Episcopal Church claims to have about 1.6 million members in the United States, but in 2018, the average Sunday attendance was less than 600,000. So if current trends continue, this new Anglican Church in North America should end up passing the Episcopal Church in attendance, if not in membership, within the next decade. Well, while we're talking about denominational news, let's pivot to the Southern Baptists. The Executive Committee of the Southern Baptist Convention held its first meeting this week with its new chairman, Roland Slade. Yeah, Slade is the first African-American to hold that office, and he used some of his opening meeting remarks to talk about the sexual abuse issue that's uh, been a part of Southern Baptist dialogue in the last couple of years. He called on other committee members on Tuesday to be responsible to shepherd and protect uh, survivors of church sexual abuse. Slate also said that this issue is very personal for him because his wife is a sexual abuse survivor. Yeah, he said that for the last 40 years of my life, this is a direct quote, I have been in touch with a survivor of sexual abuse in the church. He said to about 70 that were gathered on a Zoom meeting. Uh, in fact, he continued, 
We've been married for 39 years. So when I say it's personal, it's personal. And I encourage you to listen. You don't have to solve it, but you do need to listen and share with them how much you care and that what has happened to them is not what God would have happened in the church. Now, the issue of sexual abuse has been a growing focus, as I said, for the Southern Baptists, especially since the Houston Chronicle last year did an article Uh, that cataloged about 700 cases of alleged abuse by Southern Baptist pastors and other leaders over a 20-year period. Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, a new study shows that liberal churches are more likely to be politically active than conservative ones, and we'll take a closer look. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and we'll be back after this short break. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, white evangelicals who comprise President Trump's core base have attracted a lot of media attention uh, for their political activism. But a new study of 1,262 congregations across the United States shows it is liberal congregations, and particularly black churches, that have become substantially more engaged in political activity compared to their conservative counterparts. Yeah, uh, one of the findings of the study was pretty interesting. Overall, they said that uh, since 2012 and possibly going back as far as 1998, when a similar study was done, the political mobilization of congregations on the left has increased far more rapidly than political mobilization of congregations on the right. Now, that's the conclusion of Mark Chavez, a professor of sociology, religious studies and divinity at Duke University and Craig Bearline, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Notre Dame. They released their findings in the December issue of the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion. Well, that's fascinating. What else did the study reveal? Well, the study found that about half of congregations, 49% to be precise, engaged in at least one kind of political activity that the survey asked them about. That 49% is up from 41% when a similar survey of this type was done in 1998. Those activities weren't all, you know, go out and vote for a particular candidate. Sometimes they were to register voters, uh, lobbying elected officials to uh, behave or to vote in certain ways. To endorse candidates for political office was, though, one of the activities. And in fact, I would say that that would be the most surprising part of the study. Some people would call 
call it a troubling part of the study, because it found that 4% of churches actually endorsed candidates, even though endorsing candidates is something that you're not supposed to do as a church. It puts your nonprofit status at risk. And another 17% of congregations said that they didn't endorse candidates, but they would if the law would allow them to do so. Uh, These numbers, by the way, are significantly higher, in fact, more than twice as high in both black and progressive churches than they are in white evangelical churches. Now, Warren, I know that we can't get through a week without at least one COVID and church story. And in fact, this week you have two, but neither of them involve John MacArthur. (laughs) That's right, though. One of them does come uh, from uh, California, and that's the story of Catholics in San Francisco who took to the streets on September 20th to participate in what they called a Free the Mass march, protesting the city's restrictions on religious services, which currently ban indoor worship, even as malls, salons, gyms, and other Uh, types of organizations have been allowed to reopen with limited capacity. This is one of the first signs that COVID church restrictions are becoming too much, not just for a few prominent churches like John MacArthur's church down in Los Angeles, but even for Catholics and others. In fact, Archbishop Salvador Joseph Cordelione, who led the protesters, actually celebrated Mass with about 1,500 worshipers outdoors at the nearby Cathedral of St. Mary the Assumption. And he made no secret of his frustration with government officials. No, he didn't. And this is unusual coming from an archbishop because that's pretty high up the food chain in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. But he told uh, the crowd this, for months, I have pleaded with the city on your behalf, advocating for your need of the consolation of the mass and the consolation you derive from the practice of your faith and connection with your faith community. But he concluded, City Hall has ignored us. And it has become clear to me that they just don't care about you. Uh, We have been patiently putting up with unjust treatment long enough, and now it is time to come together to witness to our faith and to the primacy of God and tell City Hall no more. Well, that's pretty strong. Yeah, it is. And it's a sign of what I just mentioned, which is uh, something that we're seeing more and more of, that even churches that have been going willing to go along with the restrictions are now to the point of either saying enough is enough or saying that COVID, while real and dangerous, is not as dangerous as the damage done by isolating people for months at a time, of keeping people from their faith communities, communities that provide both mental health and spiritual health, but also in the case of Christian worship are a command from Scripture. Now, you say that you're seeing more of this kind of pushback. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, well, in addition to the Catholic example that we just talked about, there is one more. Uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church this week became the first church in the Washington, D.C. area uh, to um, protest against the restrictions that are taking place there. They have actually filed a lawsuit citing uh, violations of the First and Fifth Amendment. Now, uh, some of our listeners may know about Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Mark Dever um, is a pretty well-known pastor. He's the pastor of this church. It was founded in 1878. It's a church that's been around for a long time. And they filed the complaint on Tuesday, September 22nd. The complaint specifically challenged the mayor's support of the massive Black Lives Matter protest while denying the church's application to hold services 
outdoors. In fact, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser personally attended a protest on June 6th with tens of thousands of people at the corner of 16th and 8th Street in downtown D.C. Yes, you did. And that's in some ways what makes this um, a complaint particularly powerful. In fact, the complaint from Capitol Hill Baptist Church specifically mentioned that rally. In fact, the church um, said, and here's a quote, uh, we take no issue with the mayor's decision to permit these gatherings, which are themselves protected by the First Amendment. And the church supports this exercise of First Amendment rights. The church does, however, take exception to the defense and that they mean the mayor's decision to favor certain gatherings over others. The First Amendment protects both mass protests and religious worship. But Mayor Bowser, by her own admission, has preferred the former over the latter. And it is this preference that is going to be a key legal issue. Yeah, I think that's right, because even most religious liberty advocates say that the government has a right to impose restrictions on churches if they are the same restrictions that are imposed on everyone else. But when you single out the church for special treatment one way or the other, that's where you run into constitutional problems. But the mayor said something that seems to suggest that she doesn't understand that. (laughs) What she did. uh, When Mayor Bowser was asked why she favors mass protests over religious worship, she didn't deny it. She responded, First Amendment protests and large gatherings are not the same. But in fact, constitutionally speaking, they are the same. In fact, the lawsuit from Capitol Hill Baptist Church responded specifically to that unusual statement when it said, in the United States of America, people can gather for worship under the First Amendment as well. Well, before we take another break, Warren, I want you to talk about a couple of stories that caught my eye this week that involve denominations not changing their doctrine, but changing their names and their logos because of what they believe to be a negative historical associations with those brand elements. Yeah, it is a bit of a strange development, not not quite in the category of the takedown of Confederate monuments, but some of the same issues are involved. Since we were already talking about the Southern Baptists earlier in the program, let's start with them. Yeah, the Southern Baptist leaders are advocating a change in the denomination's name from the Southern Baptist Convention to Great Commission Baptist. Now, advocates of the name change say that the name distances them from regional affiliation and focuses on the command of Jesus for his followers to spread the gospel worldwide. And a lot of people, even Southern Baptists, don't know that Great Commission Baptist has already been approved as an alternate, unofficial name after heated discussions at the denomination's annual meeting back in 2012. That took place immediately after the election of Reverend Fred Luter as the SBC's first African-American president. Uh, It did not, though, appear to be widely adopted, the name change, rather, in the wake of that vote. So that's why uh, just this past week, the current SBC president, J.D. Greer, said that the theme for the June 2021 annual meeting of the Southern Baptists would be, we are Great Commission Baptists. Now, J.D. Greer said that he hoped that the use of that name as the theme for the conference will encourage more churches to use the alternative name. Jason Allen is the president of Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City. It's one of the, you know, 
bigger of the Southern Baptist uh, denomination seminaries. You know, he's from the South, and he's proud of his Southern roots, but he also tweeted that, I I like the growing usage of Great Commission Baptist as a denomination moniker. Uh, Geographically, it reflects our national identity, and missiologically, it states up front what most unites and animates us. Okay, so that's what the Southern Baptists are dealing with. Now, what about the Methodists, and why are these conversations important? Well, the second question is a great one, but let me take the first question first. Uh, The United Methodist Church has a logo that is known as the cross and flame. It's two red flames that are intertwined around a thin black cross. Now, some Methodists, especially those in more progressive uh, congregations, are saying that the logo calls to mind a burning cross, which, of course, is a symbol of racism and white supremacy. Uh, Now, one of the United Methodist Church's regional conferences has taken up the call to replace that logo because of those racist associations. It's the North Texas Annual Conference. Um, the conference is what the Methodists call their regional gatherings. Voted overwhelmingly, uh, nearly 600 to about 176, to send legislation to the 2021 General Conference, which is the denomination's global decision-making body, uh, to begin that process for changing the logo. Uh, One of the um, leaders of the North Texas delegation, Clayton Oliphant, said that if the logo has become a stumbling block to part of the population we're trying to reach, then it's time for a change. Okay, so that's the answer to the first question, what are the United Methodists doing? The next question is, why are these denominational deliberations so important? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. For one thing, I think the issues that are driving the discussions are important ones. The church should be thinking about these issues, issues of race, deeply, and we should have answers that make sense to a skeptical and cynical world. And secondly, though, I should also add that logos and denominational names are not Holy Scripture. Uh, The name Southern Baptist Convention was thought up by men in the relatively recent past. The logo for the United Methodist Church, which some might call elegant and beautiful, was nonetheless just the product of a graphic designer. There's nothing sacred about them. And when we start elevating these issues to the level of the sacred, something that can't be changed, all of a sudden that doesn't make them sacred. But it does tend to degrade the things that really are sacred, the things that we should really care about, because it starts to communicate that we don't know the difference between the two. Uh, But I I would also add this, uh, Natasha, names and images do matter. I mean, just think of the Apple logo or the Nike swoosh or the special color of red that's used by Coca-Cola. Our brains respond not just to logic and reason, but also to beauty. And these historical associations. Uh, So I do hope that both the Southern Baptists and the United Methodists do proceed carefully and not merely as a response to shifting political opinion or worse yet, some misplaced concern for political correctness. Well, we're going to take another break, but when we return, the story of a ministry working with Native Americans in the Southwest. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello everyone, I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. 
Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, normally at this point in the podcast, we focus on an individual who has committed himself or herself to radical philanthropy, and we call this the generous living segments. But today, there's something different. Yeah, a little bit different today. Um, today, we look at a ministry that was started by one of those types of individuals, Jack Drake, but he started it almost 70 years ago. Uh, he founded Navajo Ministries in 1953 to respond to terrible problems with abused and neglected children in the Four Corners region of the Southwest. Uh, that's New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado, not very far from where you are, Natasha, there in Pagosa Springs. But way back then, his team was small. I mean, it was just he and his wife, and they had a borrowed tent that they pitched in a field to provide care for two needy young children. Uh, however, over the years, they have been quietly faithful. Uh, Drake and Navajo Ministries um, have now, over the years, grown to the point where, though still a relatively small ministry, they've cared for more than 1,500 children over the years. Um, and Navajo in- Ministries has also evolved a bit. Uh, it has the Four Corners Home for Children, which includes two long-term homes with a crisis home for uh, children that are maybe needing just short-term respite uh, help. Uh, That's staffed by about 30 people. They have a a radio station, uh, KNMI, uh, which is the number one Christian radio station in Farmington, New Mexico. And they also have Navajo Nation Outreach, which includes a counseling program, including substance abuse counseling that targets uh, Navajo people in that part of the world. Wow, what a necessary and amazing ministry. So how do these children and families find this ministry? Well, they come to uh, the Four Corners Home for Children through tribal or social services placement. Uh, One three-year-old child, for example, uh, came to them with a deep gash on her forehead after her father had flung her against a bookcase and fractured her skull. Um, Officials removed another seven-year-old girl from a trailer that she shared with 11 other children and they were being supervised by registered sex offenders. Um, Dirt and parasites had caked on this little girl's face to the extent that she now will have permanent scars. That is horrible. And I understand that alcohol is a huge contributor to this problem. Yeah, that's unfortunately true. And that's one of the reasons why Navajo Ministries, though they started out providing, you know, 
care housing and and just uh, love and care for kids have expanded into an alcohol and drug abuse uh, counseling center. Uh, it's a big problem on Indian reservations throughout the country, but especially in the West. Um, the good news, though, is that uh, once safely in one of these children's homes, the children are sort of free from that influence of adult supervision that is driven by alcohol. And they have uh, professional counselors, licensed counselors. They have a routine. Uh, Family dinners take place every day. It's amazing what a predictable and safe routine can do to bring healing for these kids. I understand that this isn't a huge ministry, but a small ministry that has a big impact because it focuses on kids over a long period of time. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't just uh, sort of stick with them for a few days or a few weeks, but it really, these long-term care facilities, they're, just really, they're really able to raise these kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And and you're right, it is a small ministry. The budget for all the things that we've talked about is just $1.3 million a year, uh, which is a pretty small budget when you consider how much they're doing. Uh, and I should point out that COVID has added some additional expenses to the ministry. Uh, they have to deal with extra sanitary requirements and all the other restrictions that the rest of us have uh, had to deal with as well. And one other thing I want to mention as well, even though they get some of their kids from uh, government agencies like the local Department of Social Services, in fact, Navajo Ministries doesn't receive any money from the government itself. Uh, It takes all of its money from individuals and from churches that believe in what they're doing. That is such a great story. Thanks for sharing it. And if you're interested in learning more about it, just go to Ministry Watch's website and you'll find it there. And Warren, before we go, I know that you have a couple of housekeeping items to share. Yeah, I do. First, I want to remind everyone that uh, Ministry Watch has a new book out. It's called Faith-Based Fraud, Learning from the Great Religious Scandals of Our Time. Um, I wrote that book. I've been working on it for more than 10 years, and I'm really pleased with how it came out. We're offering it as a thank you for a gift of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of September. Uh, We've had a couple of hundred people already respond, uh, so I'm really pleased about that. If you would like to know more about the book or to make a donation, you can go to Ministry watch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. And I also want to let everybody know that on Friday, September the 25th, which could be today for some of you, it depends on when you listen to this podcast, but I know a lot of you listen to it on a Friday morning. Um, we're going to be doing a free online webinar that's based on the book. I'll be leading it. I've got folks uh, checking in via Zoom, I hope. You can check the daily Ministry Watch emails for details about how to sign up. And I also want to mention that it's going to be an interactive session. We're limiting attendance to about 100 people so that I've got plenty of opportunity to go back and forth with Q&A. So sign up quickly if you want to get in that first 100 so that we can interact live. If uh, Even if you don't make that first 100, you can still sign up. Uh, Anyone on the waiting list will get a link so you can at least watch it later. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Christina Darnell, Emily Miller, Ann Stike, Bethany Starlin, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Pagosa Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.